welcome to the Bio Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Banity. This week, we have the full crew on staff. So welcome to the party, Randall. Thank you, Chris. Welcome, Max. Hello, everyone. And welcome to our special guest, Master Strange, Brandon Strange. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> awesome. So this week, we're going to talk about dendrochronology. But before we get into that uh, and what that means, uh, Brandon, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from? Sure. Yeah. So I am... Like Chris said, a dendrochronologist, but I'm from southern Indiana, actually right on the border of Indiana, Kentucky, in a, a little town called Boonville, Indiana. A uh, real booming metropolis with 6,000 folks. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I don't know, I've, I've done a whole variety of things, and a lot of it isn't really related to science, and I've just kind of, uh, kind of, uh, I'll be honest, kind of meandered into it in the last little bit of my life. And so, uh, yeah, but I think we'll get into a little bit more of that with the podcast and kind of my path towards that. So that's right, folks. We have another Midwesterner on here today. It's a special occasion. Mm-hmm. Represent. No more of those coastal elites mm-hmm. uh, coming in here, chatting their mouth away. But yeah, I've got an Indiana feller and a crew full of Missourians, so we're right. Hoosier. Yeah. Hoosier. Hoosier. Yeah. Nobody knows what a Hoosier is, but that's that's me. Okay, so let's let's talk about that real fast. Just a quick non-scientific diversion. Hoosier, we've talked about this between you and I, but in Missouri, specifically the St. Louis area, has a <laughs> negative connotation of Hoosier. Yeah. It does yeah. have a negative connotation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had never heard this before Chris told me. Every, everyone I talk to just thinks Hoosier is this, you know, a person from Indiana. That's that's it. Like, that's all the connotation in Indiana. But so it's, so, it's, it's not it's not negative? It's, is it positive or is it just, like, neutral? It's, it's, like, neutral. It's just like a, like, a, you know how, like, the Tennessee volunteers, you know, they're volunteers, whatever. So you would call somebody from there a volunteer. Like, that's, it's just, like... Uh, a label, a descriptor. Neutral. That's neutral. Crazy. It is what it is. Neutral. Now, I heard of no credible substantiation whatsoever that it's because St. Louis used to have a car plant. I think a, I think it was Chevy. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. Long before Sounds my right. time. And the workers went on strike, and then the company went behind their backs and hired a bunch of Indiana guys who came over and took their jobs. And then that's why the Hoosier in our little pocket of the world has a negative connotation. Now I don't see you that way, Brandon. Mm, mm-hmm. We get along just fine. I mean, I do the things people don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is all news to me. I didn't know you identified as a Hoosier until just now. Yeah. <laughs> Dendrochronologists, we're, we're the Hoosiers of the science world. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's actually a pretty great, in my opinion, discipline, but obviously I'm biased. <laughs> All right, Brandon, so you're from Indiana. That's mm-hmm. where you grew up. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you were first introduced to, like, science, uh, the natural world, and the kind of, like, where your passion to pursue science comes from? Yeah, so... Uh, my family lived in, in town in Boonville until I was in about 
first grade and then we moved out into the country where uh, like I was telling these guys earlier I'd have to walk across a cornfield to like go to my neighbor's house or uh, I did have some neighbors that were just a little bit down the road so that wasn't too bad but one of my good friends was all the way across the cornfield um, but I think that's really where I started to get interested in uh, in kind of the natural world around us and uh, I do I remember it explicitly whenever we were building our house out in the country we were digging out the basement and pouring footers for the house and stuff and there was just like we were excavating so many cool bugs and critters like I don't remember exactly what it was but there was something like it wasn't a centipede but it was some like creepy crawly sort of thing and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever and I also um I would I caught a mouse when we were building the house and had a pet mouse for all of about two hours until my parents found out. Um, so all of that, that kind of like living out in the country, we would just kind of walk out in the woods and check stuff out, me and some of my neighbors. I think that was really what did it for me. And then I will say I had, a, you know, I think like a lot of folks that get into science had a absolutely wonderful uh, grade school science teacher Shout out Miss Skelton. Um, <laughs> yeah, Miss Skelton. She was so close to being Miss Skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> so cool as she was. But anyway, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, in hindsight, I probably had a little bit of a reputation as a, as a teacher's pet in her class. Because I just, I thought all the stuff we were doing was so freaking cool. That I, I don't know, I would I would raise my hand for like everything. And I think, you know, maybe I was a teacher's pet, but <laughs> all in all, you know, it, it worked out. Um, but yeah, she was she was wonderful. So I think those were really my my at least foundational interest or push towards science. So you would really say that's kind of based off of like the just natural curiosity as a child and like organic exposure to it yeah yeah absolutely just being a kid doing kid things whenever whenever we first moved into our house and I hadn't met our neighbors yet I decided I was going to walk across and I knew there was kids like my age that lived at this house and so I was like I went into you know my uh my dresser I put on a pair of shorts I got I had so many different t-shirts but I put on and I a plain white t-shirt and then I went, met this neighbor kid, and played in the mud in the creek in the <laughs> forest, and I absolutely destroyed that shirt. <laughs> uh, my mom was pretty pissed about it, and uh, awesome. not too happy that I ruined it. <laughs> Literally, I had any number of shirts that nobody gave a shit about, but I put on this you know, pristine. <laughs> I mean, this was as pure as the driven snow, <laughs> and uh, and then I just completely ruined it playing in the creek bottom. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think just getting out, you know, like uh, I was telling you guys earlier, I had like four or five channels on our, our local TV. Mm-hmm. So really what we did is we just went outside. We would go play in the woods, go play in that creek bottom, mm-hmm. um, just do whatever, do whatever bored kids do in the country, you know. <laughs> so I think, yeah, uh, more of a natural just encountering it was kind of my introduction to it, yeah. I, I, I like – that you bring up that, uh, you know, you, you were really interested in science as a kid, which I think is interesting because a lot of people like kids hate science or kids don't want, 
to get involved with science and math and stuff. But I really think it's the the regimented nature that a lot of people try to push kids into, yeah. pushes them out of it. Because as kids, you have this natural curiosity and just playing outside or, you know, you find a bug. You're like, what does this thing eat, man? This thing's crazy. Yeah. You, know, you got to like. You know, you got to know. You got to know, right? That natural curiosity, <laughs> yeah. So I think that that, that kind of helps put aside the idea that, you know, kids hate science and that's something that some grumpy, old, hairy, smelly man, you know, he's going to die at his desk does. People do science their whole life. Uh, yes. It's just whether or not you choose to pursue that as like a career. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely – there's a lot of distractions for kids these days. Like there's the internet, TV, and like sometimes like different – they pursue different areas of interest, you know, like a lot of kids love the internet. So I don't know if it's getting more rare for kids to go into science, but. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on like, cause a lot of people love to, to vilify technology in terms of kids and like, I don't know. There's people that are like this damn kid just loves their iPad and they, they don't do anything. They don't interact with people. Yeah. And like, well, one, the parents, and that's probably partly on them for not setting healthy, you know, <laughs> restrictions. But um, I think there's a lot of cool opportunities with technology. Like at my old university, they had this this uh, program called Code with Your Kids, where you could come in and you know neither of you, the parent nor the child, had to have experience with coding, and they would teach both of you. So it was a really cool like bonding thing and kind of harnessing that cool power of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for that to get kids interested in science. But yeah, I don't think it's it's nearly the same where it's just like, let's go play in the woods and like climb trees and stuff. <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to watch like technology, like YouTube or you know, even you know TV like cable TV or whatever uh, or even some video games kind of give kids an exposure to the outdoors quote unquote right because they might not actually be going outside but it can get people interested you know in, in like uh, learning different mechanics of how the natural world works but uh, on the other hand yeah I mean some kids like you know hoverboard with an ipod in hand or ipad and an <laughs> ipad in hand. <laughs> those darn scallions <laughs> flying around with no regard to the world or anything no not really like that but i think i think there's probably in any generation there's just aloof idiots right <laughs> and i'm not calling kids idiots like i don't know maybe there's some some idiot kids we'll see but uh <laughs> There's like uh, it just like maybe becomes kind of the the harbinger of of mm -hmm. technology and and kids not doing things is just like well this kid had an iPad and literally right. a little dum dum so right yeah well for me it's like it's it's an every kid has a natural curiosity it's just kind of like their own personality what they affix that to yeah uh, and I feel like for you know kids like you or even me, I probably played outside less than you did, but I did play outside a lot. Mm. And it's like, you know, that's where my curiosity lay. And, and you shouldn't necessarily push people in different directions where it's not their their fit. Yeah. But so you knew as a, as a young kid that you had this passion for science and desire to just learn more about the world around you. Um, so then 
you know, I don't know if you had any other like formative experiences in like middle school or high school or whatever that you would like to talk about. Well, but, I, mean, I mean, if you don't, you don't have to, but no, it's not. It's so it's a funny story. And I'll definitely, as we go down the road with, you know, my progression towards science, talk about this more. But I will say that after, I, I don't know what grade that would have been, fourth or fifth, where I had Miss Skelton as a science teacher, I uh, I really just kind of, I, I didn't lose interest, but I just like quit going further with it. And I remember it was, it was like the cool thing when we were in middle school to like not like math and things <laughs> like that. So I think I fell kind of trapped or fell into that trap and was just like, whatever. And honestly, I started just becoming more and more interested in arts and humanities, uh, um, which is a real funny thing for a physical scientist to have. But, you know, in, in middle school and high school, that's kind of the, the trajectory I was on was, you know, English and uh, different arts and ceramics, love ceramics. Uh, wanted to buy a, a pottery wheel at one point. Good thing I didn't. Um, <laughs> we ever lost a man to the arts. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so yeah, like it, no real formative uh, experiences in terms of like science or anything like that. But but just exploring other opportunities. Yeah, right? yeah. Just uh, you know, in the terms of a tree ring scientist, I was branching out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It hurts. <laughs> well, I'm uh, sure the English the English helped a lot with you know there's a lot of papers when you become a scientist. I'm sure. Absolutely. The English probably and didn't hurt at all. It's funny. Maybe we'll talk more about this later. But I was a English major and I wanted to write grants for nonprofits when I was in college. And um, you know now that I'm in science and this uh, you know PhD program. Grant, writing grants is still something that I do all the time. So it ended up being more applicable than I would have ever thought. But yeah, for sure. Right. So it's, it's just kind of, I think a lot of people either are, are forced into something they don't want to do. Their parents like, you got to do this. You're not going to make any money if you don't do this. So it's yeah. awesome that you kind of had that freedom to explore whatever you wanted uh, and then you, it's it's interesting that you found your way back around to to science where you were just naturally curious in the beginning. Oh yeah, it, it was it's a wild journey. You <laughs> went, you went uh, full uh, circle. Yeah, the, it's the circle of life. Uh, <laughs> whole tree ring. Yeah, the whole tree ring. Well, yeah. well you can't rip that pun too early. I've got it stored up. Oh man, it's but... true. It's true. <laughs> We'll just edit that one out. <laughs> I'm gonna start keeping record of uh, tree ring puns. All right. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta warn you. I, I say a lot. In fact, when I give talks about tree rings, I give a lot. I, I, and this is no exaggeration. I was giving a talk, uh, one time in the tree ring lab, and I said a pun, and somebody in the audience literally groaned. Uh, <laughs> 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 I knew the guy, but still audible groaning in response to the sheer amount of puns that and just means you're putting yourself out there i'm just yeah like, hey you, like got, you gotta have fun with it right <laughs> what's that you, you you gotta have fun with it right that's right absolutely yeah. i mean yeah if you if you're not having fun what's the point but yeah for sure so i mean i'm sure there's a there's like as you said a wild ride to explore 
uh, in that undergrad career, but you found yourself back into science and uh, what, like, did you have a, a moment where you like really made a decision to, to come back or was it just kind of a natural or, you know, what happened? Man. So <laughs> let me tell you a little story. So I was reading Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, which is fine. Um, cool stories, whatever. The kicker was I was taking it in an English course where we had to read it in Middle English. Um, which, if you've ever read Middle English, is it's like almost close enough to modern English where you can read it, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So you really have to like you have to phonetically sound out every single word. You can't just like skim, you know, a paragraph. It's just like knight, and you're like, what the hell is knight? And you're like, it's a knight. Okay, <laughs> got. It. Moving on to the next word. And so it was it was brutal reading all of those. And um, at the same time, I was taking this uh, weather and climate class that was taught by this PhD student, and uh, I, it was it was just super cool. This guy, um, credit to him, he was so passionate about it, and he had a pretty strong background in meteorology and climatology, so he would go into like really nuanced detail in this course, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. Um, and so he would go into, like, Ekman spirals in the ocean, and I was like, what the hell is that? And he would tell us every every single detail about it, and it was just wild. So it was kind of a culmination of me taking this Jeffrey Chaucer Middle English class and being like, God bless, this is the worst. It's so brutal. And me thinking, well, I don't know if I necessarily want to only do English stuff for the rest of my life. This other, this physical science stuff, yeah, it's pretty cool. So the next semester, same grad student was teaching a class called paleoclimate. I didn't know what paleoclimate was. I had heard of like the paleo diet, and I was like, is this somehow related? And I read the description. I was like, okay, it's not related, but, you know, it's still cool. And so I took it, and... This guy was a dendrochronologist himself. And, you know, if anybody doesn't know what a dendrochronologist is, it's just somebody who studies tree rings. Um, And so he's a dendrochronologist. So we read a ton of papers about uh, tree rings and paleoclimate with that, some ice cores, some sediment cores, lake cores, whatever. And it was just, I don't know, I loved it. And just kind of building off of this right place, right time, everything lining up. At the end of the class, he goes, hey, my advisor it wants to hire an undergrad to work in the tree ring lab for course credit. I needed a few more courses to get my, my double major in geography, which is what these courses were in. And so I was like, yeah, I'll go work in the tree ring lab for three credits. That's cool. And I mean, to make a, a long story short, I just love tree rings after that. <laughs> Um, we would be in the lab being this graduate student and I would just like, I would waste entire afternoons cause I would just sit there and ask him questions mm-hmm. about w- what was going on with this and why you do it this way instead of whatever. And so we were sitting there talking, you know, wasting another afternoon where we had been talking for like two and a half hours. And he was like, man, you should apply and be in grad school. And I was like, huh, weird. I'm an English major. <laughs> I don't know. And 
you know, long story short, I, I did apply. I applied with the the guy who I worked with uh, as an undergrad and got accepted. Even that was kind of a weird right place, right time thing. Like I applied after the deadline because we were talking after yeah. deadlines had already happened for applying to grad school. And so the advisor was just like, hey, you should like applications are already do. But if you put one in and somebody either turns it down or they don't have enough people that they accept, you could still get in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, sounds like, you know, slim odds, but whatever. And so lo and behold, I put an application in. And I got accepted. And so, I mean, the rest is kind of history. I, I just kind of fell into like an open door. Was, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, like a, a bunch of like different coin flips, not coin flips, but a bunch of different like random, like low pr- probability events all came together. And this is where you are now. Yeah, it is. You know, and it's kind of like my, the advisor that I worked with in my master's, the same guy, he, he told me one day, he's like, you know, I never really planned on being uh, in science. He wanted to be a ski bum. He majored in like <laughs> management, like business management. And he was like, I just wanted to follow the snow. And then somehow I started, I stumbled into tree rings. And he's like, I've just been stumbling through open doors my entire career. And I was like, yeah, okay. I think I can kind of, <laughs> I can relate to that too. It's just like these weird, you know, circumstances where I'm like, that sounds cool. I think I'll try that out and mm-hmm. end up loving Well, I think, well, what were you going to say? Uh, um, I was just to say, I think it's like a good life life lesson for like people to like not be scared of like trying new things. And if like that's the way like your trajectory is going, you can just try it out. And if you don't like it, you don't have to do it. And yeah, absolutely. Much, just be open. And that's probably the fastest way for, for exponential growth. Yeah. <laughs> for real, man. And, and that kind of also like, points out people like getting into graduate school is no doubt hard and difficult and everything but talk to everybody you're interested in because sometimes an opportunity will be there and if it's not the right place at the right time they might recommend you to somebody else or they might uh, have you in the back of their mind and be like hey I really enjoyed talking to this guy it was a shame or girl or it was a shame I didn't have an opportunity for them at the time but and you might come back in their memory at, at a later time. Um, and, you know, Brandon told us this now. Um, uh, Tagi, Sam Tagi told us that before, that technically he was kind of like on, you know, a, a last-minute crutch where the somebody dropped out, and he said, yeah, I'll take it. And then he loved that experience. So like you said, yeah, don't be afraid to try new things, and then it's awesome that it, it just worked out for you. And I really like the phrase that you said, stumbling through open doors, you know? It's, yeah. <laughs> if, if I can elaborate even more. Yeah. So that was for my master's, all, you know, all that happenstance that, you know, culminated in me being like, I freaking love tree rings. I'm going to do this. <laughs> so for my Ph.D., to get into that program, I originally applied with somebody else. And this person acted like, yeah, you know, this seems like a, a really good fit. He's like, you should apply. And I felt very confident about it. And I applied and I, I didn't get in. I didn't get into the, the department. And so I was pretty bummed about that. And I was just on Twitter one day and I came across my now advisor. She tweeted something about like, hey, I'm looking for a PhD student mm-hmm. who um, is like broadly interested slash trained in like 
forestry, tree rings, ecophysiology, and like I had tree rings, but no experience with forestry or ecophysiology, and um, like I just on a whim, I sent her my CV and was like, yeah, I kind of fit this bill, not really, but kind of, and she was, she emailed me back and was like, let's talk on the phone, and I was like, (laughs) this is serious, so. Yeah, and like this this project that I'm working on now is like really ecophysiology based with a little bit of tree rings. I had no experience with ecophysiology, and I was super freaked out about starting a PhD in something that I had no experience in. And then I mean it's all working out. There's there's a bit of a learning curve, but anybody can really pick any topic up if they if they put their mind to it more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know just to to draw on like how lucky I've been with applications to, to programs. I applied late for this program as well <laughs> after the fact. And, uh, Keep up the trend. It's working. I know it's, you know, when it's meant to be, it's meant to be, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I really lucked out with both of those. So. Absolutely. And he made a, a really important point that like social media for scientists is, uh, a ever growing right now. Uh, before it was non-existent and you had like the most famous like science communicators, right? Like you had Bill Nye just randomly out of context tweeting out facts about rockets. And then you had, I love Bill Nye, so I'm not like, you know, talking down on him. But, and then you had like Neil deGrasse Tyson, like uh, uh, tearing apart the latest Star Wars movie for no reason whatsoever. And then now uh, science um, has an ever-growing presence in social media. I see positions uh, come across Facebook and Twitter every day. Um, A lot of people trying to grow uh, just science communication as a whole, which is something I'm, like, trying to get into myself, but I'm not willing to, like, it seems this is a little bit of a digression from, from what we're talking about, so don't associate this exactly with what we just said but it seems like certain people certain scientists on twitter especially um are trying to like they lose their personality uh in how they interact with people trying to get them into scientists but really people need to understand that scientists are people right we have personalities and that personality inevitably bleeds into how we do science um so that was my little short digression well i I think another important thing is like with the proliferation of folks being on Twitter and Instagram, whatever for their for their science, um, it really shows. It, I think it, it kind of mirrors the the you know one of the emphasis of this podcast, which is like showing that science is for everybody, and that there's so many different uh, kind of you know demographics in science. It's not just old crusty white dudes. Um, which is so often how it's portrayed in everything. You know, you see the the movie where there's like the scientists saying like, this is going to be the worst storm in 55 years. And it's just old white dude, hair coming out of his ears. But, you know, I get on Twitter and there's such a diverse and uh, I, I don't know how representative, but it seems pretty representative of the, the wide array of folks doing science. So I think that's really important too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Totally agree. And, yeah, I'm glad you pointed out, you know, one of the main messages of the show, you know, 
is science is for everybody. And so that's really what we're trying to lay down here. But, uh, but yeah, I also want to say, did you ever read The Fairy Queen? Yeah, yeah. Dude. Wait, or maybe. Who's that by? I don't even remember. So there's... <laughs> the Fairy Queen. I'm almost certain I have that book on my bookshelf, and I I read it for a class, but I can't remember exactly. I, it's like some, some old-ass yeah, old, old literature. It's old. I don't know. I don't even... I don't know if it's true old English, but it's like old English style. And that was like in the darkest times of my undergraduate <laughs> career. I promised myself, because I had gotten through like the back half of my high school career and the front half of my undergrad career, like not reading anything. And mm-hmm. I was able to do it. So I said, I'm going to promise myself I'll read every single book that I have to read this semester. And I signed up for this old English literature course and I had to read the fairy queen and I did. It. Okay. It was rough. It was, so you didn't, you did not care for the fairy queen. I, I, the story was good, but just getting into it was rough. Yeah. But I just wanted to ask you if you'd read it. Cause it seems like I've never met someone who can empathize with that pain. I, I, I am pretty sure I read it. It must not have been too memorable, <laughs> but I, also have this like I feel like negative connotation in my mind with the Fairy Queen, so maybe I, I can sort of empathize. No hate to anybody that loves the Fairy Queen. Uh, I'm sure, it's I great. It. Maybe I loved it. I don't know. <laughs> we'll we'll see. I'm seeing a, a reoccurring theme here of old English novels being low points <laughs> in people's careers. That's the underwriting theme of this whole episode. <laughs> it was in mine as well. <laughs> no notable stories. It was just the, the worst. Worst class. <laughs> <laughs> See, it could push anybody back to science, man. <laughs> Don't, I, we, we're not, ter- we're not. This podcast is getting me going. I'm about to no. do science. <laughs> in in the in the grand scheme of things, after the fact, I really enjoyed reading uh, Canterbury Tales in its native, you know, old or Middle English. Uh, it it was cool. It was just like a learning curve of the vernacular. Like most of the words you could like phonetically sound out and it was fine. But there were some that were just completely different words. Yeah. Like like I don't I or don't words remember. that we don't use anymore. Yeah, like really esoteric words that are just like, What the hell is this? Which also also is, is kind of a valuable tool in, in science, right? Because jargon. Yeah, jargon <laughs> or you read literature, and it's like from somebody in the exact same discipline as you are, but from the opposite side of the world. And it's like, what? What is this word? Why would you say that instead of the word that we all use? And they realize like, oh, only like half the world uses this word. The other half of the world doesn't use that word. That's that's so that's so like, I don't know. In so much science, it's it's one north or northern hemisphere biased at least for stuff and then even further it's like north american bias we're like everybody does it the way we do it (laughs) reminds me of a a joke i heard probably on reddit (laughs) why can't you hear a pterodactyl go to the bathroom because the p is silent (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) clap for me (laughs) everybody listening in thunderous applause uh, all right. So through a cascading opening of doors, uh, l- through luck and talent and being qualified, 
and just being, you know, a regular ass white dude, you know, open doors <laughs> happen sometimes. You found a fit in, so we talked about your masters already, or no? No, I we mean, talked about getting into the masters. We talked about getting into the masters. All right. So what was the what was your first experience experience with like your masters program, which we're gonna compare to your PhD, because like in masters programs, oftentimes, which I'm I don't know if this is the case for you, but oftentimes you're like given a project, right? And mm-hmm. your your advisor's like, here's my hypothesis on how I think this will work. Here are some techniques you should use. Employ them. I'll be there for you. And then you're you're left at the time it feels like you're left alone in the great abyss, but really you've been provided a, you a lot of aid. Plan. Yeah. yeah. So mine mine isn't drastically different from that. My advisor had basically when I got accepted into grad school, he was like, "Hey, here's some things that I've been thinking about working on, and you could take one of these ideas and make your own project out of it." And so. Um, I guess I can go into details, you know, um, my, my master's project, um, I was looking at reconstructing stream flow using tree rings, which sounds like a really weird divide, right? Like, and to be absolutely clear, we don't take trees that are along the riparian area or along the river, right? We, we take trees that are just sensitive to the precipitation, because if you think about what controls the flow of the river, what controls the growth of the trees, one, the trees, it's like soil moisture, which is a lot of precipitation, especially in the eastern United States. And then it's the same for um, the the river, right? The stream flow, like it's a lot of precipitation. So that's the common thread um, between those. So before we get like too far into this, so you were looking at stream flow. So that's like the volume of water coming through a, a stream at, at one time, right? Yep. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And then seasonal. <laughs> seasonal. You know, with tree rings, we only go so fine temporally. Okay. Well, well and then for temporally means like oh, by time, like uh, the window of time. So yeah, we would look at seasonal averages of stream flow, usually like three months. So this time, like. When people hear tree rings, and uh, like for a lot of people, like... How they, old is the tree? Well, yeah, how old is the tree? <laughs> or it's like, you know, that old uh, birch in the backyard. Birch is probably not a good example. Oaks. Everybody that, oaks. Yeah. That old oak in the backyard's uh, on death's doorstep. It's got to go. Then you chop it down, and then you're like, oh, let's look at the tree rings. And then it's like, how old is the tree? And that's what I think a lot of people think about tree rings. But like... When you say we took trees, like what, what, what were you looking at cross sections of the whole tree? Were you taking cores of the tree? Um, like, how how did you do that? I'm tempted to joke and say we took a bulldozer and just <laughs> smashed them all, but that would be destructive to the field of dendral chronology. <laughs> we non-destructively sample these trees. We we have oh, can I go back to your like look at this big or this old tree? Yeah, everybody and their cousin has a gigantic oak tree, maple tree, whatever, in their backyard, right? And they're like, that thing is so big, it's got to be like 400 years old. <laughs> and the thing people don't realize is a tree growing in the open has no competition. And so they get huge. 
A lot of oh. times these trees are like 50 years old. They're like, you're older than this tree. Grow up. Got uh, steroids here in the grass. Yeah. It's like, man, it's it's wild. But okay, back to back to sampling trees. We we take basically a hollow drill bit. And so it's threaded on the end, it's very sharp and it's hollow. So and they, these come with a diameter of five millimeters, four point three millimeters, all the way up to twelve millimeters, which is what I use now. But in my masters, I was using five millimeters because we would only look at the ring width of these. And so we we had this handle, and we basically screw that hollow drill bit into the tree. So that's like a tire iron, basically. You're like turning the tire iron with a drill bit on it? Honestly, it's not that different. <laughs> um, if you change a tire, maybe it's good training to be a dendrochronologist. Um, but, uh, yeah, so then we go to what we think where the, the, the end of that drill bit is about the center of the tree. Because you really only have to go to the center. Trees grow center out, right? So if you get to the center, you get the whole growth profile of the tree. So we would take and we would sample... This is important for climatology. You sample parallel to the slope, which is on the sides of the tree, um, not up or down slope. So with the slope on the sides of the trees. I don't know if that's clear. It's hard to describe. So do you mean the slope of the ground? Yeah, yeah. So if, you, if you're on a hillside, rather than being uphill or downhill of the tree, we sample beside the tree. And that's because when trees grow on hillsides, the the down slope and upslope can have reactionary wood, which means like it wants to grow straight up, right? Mm-hmm. So if it grows reactionary wood on the bottom, it grows really fat rings for part of it to make that tree go upright. Oh, yeah. So yeah. You, so you said parallel to the slope of the ground. Yeah, and beside like, the trees. So. Yeah, it's so hard to explain, and we do it in papers all the time, and it's just like. Parallel to the slope of the tree, and it just doesn't sound clear. I don't know a good way to, to relate that. So rather than being above or below the tree on the slope, you stand beside the tree, mm-hmm. and that is giving you the clearest. Uh, our, our best approximation, and we take a core from each side of the tree so that we can average it, um, because sometimes, I mean, trees trees are, are sometimes really wonky. Like one side of the tree may just like be have fat rings like jumbo size and the other side's like i'm pretty normal so you take the average of it and you you get a more or less representative profile of the the growth of the tree is that because the tree is growing faster on one side or is it the tree like physically moving causing it to like kind of stretch over time well it's just like it's it's honestly pretty variable trees grow asymmetrically a lot so Sometimes it'll put more wood on one side. Sometimes it'll put more wood on the other. It's like if you look at a tree and you're like, I can look and I can pretty much tell where the center of this tree is. Oftentimes, like the very center of the tree is called the pith. So when we take a core, you would think like you can look at a tree and be like the center. If I go on this you know, trajectory, I'm going to hit the center for sure. And you almost never hit the center because they grow so asymmetrically. It's just, I don't know the exact reasons um, uh, from a biological standpoint, but I, I mean, they grow very asymmetrically a lot. I mean, yeah, so I think, I think it's fair to say a lot of people just assume a tree is going to be perfectly concentric yeah. and it's going to be uniform rings all, all the way around. And 
I think it's probably going to be, I mean, people, it's probably, they're probably going to be like interested in the fact or, or impressed that they're learning that, you know, the rings are not as uniform as you would expect. And, and that really you do have to take the average when you're looking at them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and not just the average from like one tree we take, uh, you know, for ringless stuff, we take usually 10 trees, two samples per tree. And that we pretty much will average that by site. So it's the average of all of those to give us a representative growth profile uh, per year. And another cool thing um, some some folks may not be super familiar with, trees, they, they have a negative exponential growth curve. They grow they have really big rings initially, and then the rings get smaller just naturally when they get larger. And that's because uh, basically the way I've heard it best described is they put, you know, more or less the same amount of wood on, but it's a bigger circle. So there's less wood that goes per area on there. Um, so we have to actually take that trend out to, to get at the, the ring widths. That makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah. Just before we move on from that, like exponential growth, like people just throw that word around, but it's like unlimited growth really quick. It, yeah. So you have like kind of a, I won't say flat, but like flatter at the beginning and then shoots up really fast. But reverse means that it would be kind of the rate of growth is going to be relatively uniform and then slowing down over time. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so we... we Typically, just take a negative exponential curve and fit it to the growth profile and remove that that spline from it to give us a, a more or less year-to-year variability. So just is to, that, like, sorry, what were you going to say? I would say, uh, is that height, like growth, like height or growth, like, oh, like total mass? Radial growth. So okay. uh, as, as the tree, you know, puts on a ring of structural um, biomass going out, from the center of the tree every year. That's what we're measuring for ring width. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. And then I just wanted to rehash, like, what were the, so the research questions you were looking at specifically here? So these riparian trees, you're looking at stream flow. They're not riparian, Chris. Weren't you paying attention? (laughs) That you, okay, okay, fine. You're right. You said outside the riparian area, you were trying to make, uh, Get, get a measure of stream flow over time in the stream, right? By trees outside of the riparian area. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive. But so here's the thing. So trees that are riparian often have access to the high water table mm-hmm. uh, at the stream. So they're just fat and happy. There's no variability in their rings. Whereas trees on a well-drained slope, they're pretty sensitive to precipitation. Precipitation really determines... Uh, how much they're going to grow in a given year. There's other factors, obviously, but in in the eastern United States, it's often uh, precip and soil moisture. I mean, the integration of, of precipitation over time. The water uh, doesn't pull there. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, like, obviously there's some temperature baked in, but overwhelmingly the signal is going to be for soil moisture and precipitation, some sort of hydroclimate. And that's that's where we get um, uh, you know the the model from from streamflow and or er, and true ring wisp because it has that common influence or 
input factor of precip. Okay. So were you able to like fulfill your your desire to understand what was happening in that area better, or was it you know just not not great? <laughs> I think it turned out pretty great. Um, I I so basically I was evaluating approaches to using tree rings to reconstruct stream flow because there had been a couple recent papers that had proposed these new novel techniques to reconstruct stream flow with tree rings. And so basically I said, I want to look at this tried and true, the thing that people have been doing since like the 1970s, right? Which is another point is like dendrochronology is a really young field compared to like, you know, evolutionary biology or something. It's only been around since like, I don't know, 1940s or, or so. Mm -hmm. But wow. um, so I was looking at the tried and true method and also this one method that uses a reconstruction of soil moisture from tree rings to reconstruct <laughs> stream flow. It's, it's really, it's kind of wonky. And then, um, no. Wait, say that one more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean it's wonky. It was just yeah. a really interesting way to reconstruct stream flow. So they take tree rings and they calibrate a model to Palmer Drought Severity Index, which is basically soil moisture. And so they reconstruct PDSI or Palmer Drought Severity Index, and then they use that index to then make a regression model with streamflow and reconstruct streamflow for the, the length of that PDSI reconstruction. You know, if if I could draw a diagram, it would make sense, <laughs> but it's a little uh, yeah. convoluted. It's basically like an algebra problem where like you have this part of the data and then you can like do the algebra and figure out stream flow. That's yeah. science, baby. <laughs> science. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not I'm not a huge science expert, so. I'm no, wondering. no, no, no. I, I'm yeah. just being, uh, facetious. Facetious. Goof uh, troop. <laughs> but uh, um, it's like. Uh, yeah, so they reconstructed something that's kind of related to Streamflow, and then they reconstructed Streamflow with that thing that was kind of related. It's like a one-off, which, okay, I'll cut to the chase. It So in the really, they did it for the Missouri River Basin, and it worked great. It was absolutely fantastic. You know, they had R squares all the way up to 0.9. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's like one for one. Yeah. Um. But in the small uh, drainage basin that I was working in, it did the the worst of the three approaches. So it, it just really captures big regional hydroclimate. Mm -hmm. um, Which makes sense. I mean, they probably had the most amount of water moving through the area. It was, the, it was a scale-dependent measurement strategy. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, and so the way they would pull tree rings in is they had this network of tree rings and any tree ring chronology is within 450 kilometers of a grid point. They would put that into the regression so model. A, a huge sample size. Yes. And wow. so it all just kind of got homogenized. And it worked well for the huge Missouri River Basin. I mean, that thing is massive. <laughs> and then, But if you think about the Wabash River, if anybody knows what Wabash, that is. Wabash, 98 point, what's the radio station? 
From uh, no, 89.1. 89. The Bass. The Bass. I know the Bass. <laughs> Which is coincidentally NPR here. So it's really easy <laughs> to remember. That Hold on. S- aside, let me just interrupt and derail the whole thing. 89.1 The Bash. Wabash Community College alternative rock station. <laughs> Phenomenal. Phenomenal. The best alternative rock station in that area. I know. Because that was it up driving down to Bowling Green and back. But anyway, it was great. It was on uh, iHeartRadio. I'll check it out later. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't listened to it for a while, but I, we used to get it at my house in Boonville, and I used to jam that all the time. This was, you know, to age myself a little bit. This was back in the day where if you liked a song on the radio, you would record it over a cassette whenever it came on the radio. Oh, yeah. So I did that frequently with 89.1. Kids will never know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to... You knew. You knew. Oh, I knew. Okay. So, sorry. I didn't mean to derail the whole thing. I did because I said I did, but you know. It's Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I love talking about, you know, the Wabash River, the Wabash Community College, the whole region. It's just... It's ripe. Um, but... Um, yeah, so it's a really small drainage basin. This big integration of tree rings and soil moisture didn't do so hot in it. Uh, but the other two, the other two um, did pretty good. I can go into some of the details if you guys want, but um, we got we got plenty to talk about. Yeah. Well, so so basically, just like you you, you tested out these three techniques, uh, just looking at tree core. Uh, sorry cores that let you look at tree rings then mm-hmm. you then you use the kind of with the pdsi palmer's drought palmer's drought severity index severity index which you compared to tree rings so i the only time i used pdsi or palmer drought severity index was for that one reconstruction okay. so one of the three the other two i just did straight up tree rings to stream flow okay which i mean when people talk about reconstructing things with uh, tree rings, they're often talking about regression models. Um, you just take, basically think about X and Y axes, you plot one against the other, and then you take the the equation of the line for that. And then that's your, whatever your input is for your X variable, that's what your Y comes out, right? So a little more nuanced than that, but basically, you know, bare bones, it's regression modeling. So, so you compare your actual data to this this equation, and that gives you your R squared, which tells you how close your data is to the to the equation of the line. Right? Well, well, so we yeah we take our data, our tree ring widths, plot them against stream flow values for the same time, and then whatever the equation of the line for that is is what our reconstruction model is and we we typically look for pretty decent r squareds for that Mm -hmm. so like most of most of the models i was using had like 0.6 or higher you know r squareds where it's explaining 60 percent of the variance which is pretty good for reconstruction model right the higher the r squared the better yeah so the best r squared you could get is one which is like your your data fits exactly what the model would predict. You're cherry picking. Yeah. Something's awry if you yeah, get an R squared one. So that, six, ne- that never actually happens in the yeah. real world. <laughs> it's mythical. <laughs> All right. 
So uh, do you want to like uh, finish up with that or what? I mean, you're the you're the arbiter of your own fate. God, don't you're remind the, me. Yeah. Which door? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, yeah, I guess I found these two approaches do better than the one really novel, like uh, crazy, not crazy, that's such a terrible way to describe it. This really interesting novel way to reconstruct stream flow didn't do so hot in my, my test basin. Mm-hmm. It was basically uh, the outcome. And I made some suggestions for people using, if you're going to reconstruct stream flow, using tree rings, you should probably consider these things and then pick your methodology based off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically my master's, you know, in a nutshell. That was Perfect. all for your master's. Huh? That was all, all for your master's, and that was, like, the, the main points that uh, you did in your master's? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it was just, yeah, the working on what the best way to reconstruct streamflow was in the Midwest. All right, so you finished your master's research. You answered the questions that you set out to answer. And then I got to meet you as a PhD student. What happened in between that, between your your master's and now where we are like Tim the Toolman Taylor and, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Wilson as neighbor on Cubicle Wall? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is an interesting facet uh, just for everybody – if anybody's seen Home Improvement, you know where you only see half of Wilson's face at any given time? Chris yeah. and I have that exact same relationship at our cubicles. We just peek over at each other and, you know, grunt and, and whatnot. Uh, Hopefully you see less than yeah, half exactly. of Chris's face. Uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. So what, what happened face. in between my master's and my PhD? Well, like, like I was talking about earlier, it was real a real whirlwind like I got I got rejected from the one PhD program, which let me just preface by saying if you are okay, I applied to two programs, but if you're applying for PhDs, don't just apply to one or two programs. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a bad idea. In you know, and I thought I had a really great chance of getting into this one and you know, life happens, whatever. But I think it was it was kinda irresponsible not to reach out to more people. Mm-hmm. Um but um, so I got rejected from the one program and then saw my current advisors tweet and a couple it's funny a couple people actually like private messaged me her tweet and was like hey you're looking for a PhD right mm-hmm. and uh, so I sent her my CV I was at a conference presenting my master's research and she was like let's talk on the phone and I was like okay so we chatted on the phone one day for 30 minutes or so and uh she was like, all right, you want to come visit? And I was like, this is going <laughs> so smoothly. Like, I, this seems so, this is like a dream. Um, so she flew me out to Tucson, and I was there for like three days. And, you know, got to tour the university. And I got to say, she she's affiliated with the Tree Ring Lab at uh, the University of Arizona which is one of the, the premier places for tree ring research. So that in itself was a huge draw. Um, and not only that, so for dendrochronology, the tree ring lab at University of Arizona is actually where it started. It is the initial tree ring lab. And the building looks sick. 
It's supposed to look like a tree, but it just looks cool. <laughs> Anybody out there, Google LTRR Arizona, and you will at least be interested. You you may not like it, but you'll think it's interesting. Let's uh, pull it up. Yeah. It's weird, right? It's a bunch of tubes like chained together on the outside of a building with a big tube in the middle. I mean, I don't know. I think it's cool. Although, I will say it's cool. When I first would go in there for when I started walking underneath those tubes, they just like dangle off of the side of the freaking building. So I was like, every day I'd be like, please don't fall on me. Please don't fall on me. Cause what are those movies? The Final Destination. Right? Yeah. It's like, you've taken so many cores out of trees, you're about to get cored yourself, buddy. <laughs> so poetic. poetic Hardcore. Yeah, they would, they would take my body core and be like, this guy was 28. <laughs> Tell oh, you the irony. Google Indiana. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I don't know. That was I kind of went on a side story to no, see where perfect. was I. So so you you were on the tour. You saw the tree ring lab. You're like, damn, this place is the place to be. It is one of the foundational labs. And I guess you could say tree ring science was rooted Ooh. in Tucson. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm I'm adding that to the uh, pun. That's <laughs> number two, I think. Uh, it is actually. Why can't you uh, put the pterodactyls? You're right. It's three. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I took the tour, and it was all great. And I have I have a funny story about my visit. So, um, our lab manager who was hosting me at the time, who by the way. He made me sleep on his futon with a bar running across the middle. It was very uncomfortable. He had a train, literal train, go through his backyard every 30 minutes, <laughs> blowing that horn because it was a crossroads. I didn't. I felt like I didn't sleep at all when I visited. Does he live by Borderlands? He lives right by Borderlands. Yes. The train went through his backyard. Um, <laughs> and anyway, he took me out the the night before my last night and got me super ham-boned i mean ridiculous and the next morning i was going so there's this big mountain uh that in tucson <laughs> called mount lemon and uh the my now advisor was like we'll go up mount lemon before i take you to the airport and it'll be cool and i can show you all this stuff and i was like that sounds great and then eric the lab manager took me out the night before ham-boned like i mentioned and i was super hungover the next day i mean ridiculous and then jaw my advisor picks me up and was like, let's go on Mount Lemon, which is a windy road. Mm-hmm. And a lot of switchbacks. A lot of switchbacks, a lot of elevation gain, and I was queasy. I mean, ridiculous. I I haven't asked her yet, but I'm pretty sure she knows I was hungover. Well, that's like a 5,000-foot gain in elevation. Yes. It's it's pretty. We went all the way to Summerhaven, which is like oh, the, yeah, yeah, the tippy yeah. top. And, uh, yeah, so I'm pretty sure she knew I was hungover, and she was like, hey, I'd like you to be my grad student anyway. <laughs> and so that all went well. And I went back to Indiana, and I was like, yep, I think I'll do that. I've moved to the middle of the desert where it gets 115. Isn't it? It's a big change. It is it, a big change. Okay, so you look at a precipitation map of the United <laughs> States, and you look at the eastern United States and the western United States, it is stark. Mm-hmm. A stark difference. Yeah. And 
Oh my god! When I first moved out here, my lips, my skin, everything was cracked. Dehydrated all the time. You know, yeah. One of the first pieces of advice I got was just carry water with you everywhere. Like you can't, you can't not. It just sucks the water out of your skin. How did you feel about your first monsoon season? Because to give a little background, like in St. Louis, like we get, I would assume some of the biggest thunderstorms in the country. Like, nobody takes them seriously. Tornadoes come by, and you're like, if I can't see it, why are you wasting my time, right? Turn the siren off. Like, it's fine. Yeah. You know? And then, yeah. so I moved out here, and, like, I was like, monsoons, like, come on, buddy. You know? Like, what is it going to be? It's going to be a big thunderstorm. Because after living in Kentucky, like, in Kentucky, people are like, well, I was going to go grocery shopping, but I heard it's supposed to rain later. Like, No. You don't let that ruin your day in St. Louis, Missouri. Anyway, coming out here, I did not take it seriously. And I was having a late night, and I was watching Netflix. And then all of a sudden, it, was, it had been raining for like an hour and a half, two hours maybe. And then it kicked it up another notch. And I was like, oh. And my neighbor's like, are you effing seeing this stuff? And I was like, oh, yes. Yeah, no, so I am seeing it. But how did you feel about your first, like, monsoon experience? I love the monsoon. I think it's – so, yeah, I'm real – I really miss uh, thunderstorms from being, you know, being from the Midwest. We get those storms coming across the eastern United States, and it's great. I sleep so great to thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, coming out here, you know, it it rains so infrequently. But, like, the monsoon, that's the sweet spot. Um, where it, everything just culminates. We get these big fronts coming through, these big systems coming through. I love it. I mean, it's great. I wish it was the monsoon all the time, <laughs> except for the one time. So my house key and my key to my uh, cabinet at work are on the same key ring. I biked home in the monsoon in the pouring-ass rain one day, and I, I get to my door. I'm soaking wet. I'm like, God bless it. This is the worst. And I'm patting my, patting my, my pockets. And I say, where are my keys? And then I remembered I never took them out of my cabinet at work. So <laughs> oh, I went no. back to work in the monsoon. And I, you know, I let the monsoon wash my tears away. <laughs> and, uh, and then I biked back again. It was, I mean, I was, by the time I started biking back, I was already soaked to the bone. So it didn't yeah. matter. But it was demoralizing. It's really I, a good journey, a good journey, though. It, right. It, it's not the destination, it's the journey. You're going to be telling that to your grandkids when you're yeah. 75 years old. You're like, nah, I te- I'll tell you. Yeah. Back where it used to rain. Yeah, it rained in Tucson when I was there. I'm going to slap their, their iPod, iPads out of their hands. You listen here, Junior. You learn you something here. I'm going to learn today. But the point, the point is... I do the player. Let's not go there. I can go there all day. That old Greg? No. (laughs) I'm sorry. The point is that the Arizona monsoons have the respect. Except for this year. This year was weak. Well, yeah, that's true. It was a weak monsoon. But in general, Arizona monsoons have the respect of some Midwesterners who have experience with thunderstorms. And yeah. rain, torrential downpours, get them all the time. Not yeah. a big deal. Here, it's a little bit different. But anyway, so. It's just like concentrated summer, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like for a month or two. Like not even t- like a month. Like July, some of, <laughs> maybe some of August, you just get some like 
sporadic <laughs> thunderstorms. Yeah. Yeah. yeah kind of. It's like a turkey goblin. It, <laughs> it makes my blood boil when I hear thunder. I love it. That's, <laughs> that's another thing. I I love turkeys. Um, being from the Midwest, I, I chase turkeys. Um, hunting that is. But uh, my my Twitter handle is actually dendro. You know, dendrochronology. Dendro gobbler. Uh, <laughs> I love turkeys that much. That's awesome. I like it. But you know, much aside. <laughs> all. all right. So that digression. I think it was very important. People need to know about this topic, which we covered, which, I mean, come on. Nobody expects it, right? Like, I didn't expect it. You didn't expect it. Bam. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. The monsoons are real. But anyway, so here you are. Now you, you're, 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 you're a fixture of the School of Natural Resources and Environment. A pillar. A pillar. Of hope. <laughs> a pillar of hope. You heard it here first. You are the future. And what what are you investigating now? Like, what are your main research questions? How are you doing that? And then, yeah. It's a lot to unpack there, Chris. <laughs> I'm sure there is. That's why I just left it at that. That's very open-ended. So I'm still a little tree ring boy, uh, you know, uh, investigating, you know, how what tree rings can tell us about the environment and past climate. But now... Rather than just using ringless, I use the stable isotopes, so specifically carbon and oxygen. And when I say using the stable isotopes, I mean the ratios of uh, stable isotopes. So um, C12, C13, um, that ratio, the heavy versus light isotope, and then also for oxygen, um, 16 and 18, using those to, to kind of understand better environmental and climate uh, variables that that trees I mean trees are incredible they record so much stuff about the environment it's hard not to get excited about it they, they tell us so much about how do you sorry how do you apply those isotopes how do you actually use that um, like the science the actual process you know I'm glad you asked <laughs> uh, no so my my main my main topics right now are I am trying to investigate how we can understand gross primary productivity, which is for all intents and purposes photosynthesis. So how photosynthesis has varied in the past with mm-hmm. these trees, and then also trying to find a way with stable isotopes that we can reconstruct temperature um, with these tree rings at lower latitudes, because at high latitudes. Um, trees are really sensitive to temperature often. So we can just take ring widths or density of the wood, and that tells us basically what the temperature was like. Um, it's pretty incredible how at high latitudes, there's such reliable recorders of temperature. Wow. But down in the lower latitudes, um, trees are moisture sensitive, especially in the southwest, right? So you can't just take ring width or ring density and be like, well, this is what the temperature is like, because it just it doesn't care. The tree doesn't care for that that proxy. But um, for isotopes, there's, there's a physiological uh, connection, which is like um, I'm, I'm using the, the oxygen isotopes for temperature and saying um, basically the water, precipitation, and source water – goes into the tree, right? The tree sucks up that water with its roots, 
it goes up to the leaf where there's some evaporation, there's some enrichment, which just means the light isotopes, the light oxygen isotopes from that water are evaporating, so you have more of the heavy isotopes. Yeah. That's that's uh, enrichment. And then that goes down, in it, or that's fixed into sucrose, which is then transported in the phloem of the tree down to become cellulose, which is what is the tree ring. And so I'm taking all of this physiology from like the evaporative enrichment in the leaf and there's a, there's other factors that go into it, but basically that and what the source water is to try and understand what temperature was like. Cause I mean, the temperature is such a huge factor in what that, that ratio is. So if we can find a manner in which to, to isolate that influence, it, it could be huge. So I guess, I should probably talk about um, why that's important. Well, I was going to ask uh, both why that's important, but then also, like, what's the time scale that you're looking at? Like, yeah. how many years? Yeah, that's that's a great point. So uh, let me let me preface this with saying, like, no, nobody has really been that great at extracting temperature from stable isotopes in trees at, at least at low latitudes. Um, so... This is really kind of experimental work, and so right now I'm focusing on two year, a two year time scale, just to try and nail down the model. And but from there, if we can really, you know, get this mechanism right, we could go for pretty much the life of the tree, you know, plus or minus a few, not plus, but <laughs> minus a few years typically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No plus. Yeah. So once you get the model down. You can like shrink it or expand it to narrow down or expand it the time, and you can like yeah, move we can model around to figure close out close to the the age of the tree. So if we can find, you know, say 200 year old trees, we could tell you what the temperature was like in the southern uh, latitudes for 200 years. There's there's trees in the western United States that live for this is no exaggeration 4,000 years. Um, wow. While okay, so but feasibly. You know, economically, it cost me $15 a sample to run these samples through a mass spectrometer. So to do 4,000, um, there's <laughs> multiple things we cut within one ring. So that's like lots of do re mi. <laughs> yeah. uh, so unless, you know, the federal government wants to give me that scrilla, <laughs> I probably can't do a 4,000-year record of temperature anytime soon. That sounds like yeah. super interesting data, though. Like, I'm sure that's important for, like, anyone's field anyone's like research and like any yeah. field that's outdoors like they could probably use the data so yeah. hopefully the funding once you get a model nailed down maybe funding will, will follow yeah so and we we earlier talked about grant writing i'm i'm trying to or not trying my advisor is cool with it but i basically have to write so with nsf grad students can't be pis or a, a primary investigator yeah yeah um so my advisor has to be the PI for this grant, but I'm going to write a grant to try and get like, you know, some a sizable amount of money to explore this this proxy of temperature to see if we can do it for a long time scale. It 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 really ties in nicely with the other thing, you know, I was talking about gross primary productivity. It really ties in with that because that really is a good metric of how much carbon the terrestrial uh carbon sink takes in right how much co2 it's sucking in every every year 
And so we know temperatures going up, right? We know the greenhouse effect is pretty robust. And uh, if we can look back in the past to see how temperature and GPP or gross primary productivity have interacted in the past, then we can know what the fate may be of how much photosynthesis these forests are going to do in the future, which could tell us about, you know, these big influences on the carbon cycle, which is all the rage. And wow. for good reason. So yeah. you're saying you can use this this data to like kind of peer into the future of like what follow the trend kind of? Kind of, yeah. So the the primary uh, motivation for most paleoclimate stuff is to understand what it was like in the past so we can understand what it might be like in the future. It's it's hindcasting to kind of understand what forecasting might be like. Hindcasting being just looking in the past. Um, so we want to take and if I can if I can reconstruct gross primary productivity and temperature at these same areas and see how they've interacted in the past, that could tell us what might happen to the 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 carbon sink in the future under increasing temperatures. So that's a possible outcome of it. That's that's kind of what I'm hoping to elucidate with is see what the the fate of the terrestrial carbon sink in the southwestern U.S. is. Right. And so you you yeah. say carbon sink. Basically, the carbon cycle is a as a source sink system. So sources, you know, putting carbon in the atmosphere is like burning fossil fuels and that kind of thing. And a sink uh, in ecology, right, is is uh, either a place or or a mechanism that takes something and puts it somewhere else, right? So in this context, the trees are sinks because they take that carbon out of the atmosphere and then put it in their bodies. And, I mean, yeah, that's what that's what the the biomass is, right? right? Um, all the leaves, all the the trunks, branches, that's all carbon that the tree sucked in and turned into sucrose or what we call non-structural carbohydrates, <laughs> and then turned into to cellulose for wood or whatever, right? Or yeah. roots or yeah, I think a lot of people don't don't necessarily think on that scale i mean that would be pretty grating to do that on a daily basis but had you like, telling me <laughs> but like when you're watching a sci-fi film and they like talk about carbon-based life forms like everything on earth is a carbon-based life form so trees are a great example of fully participating in the carbon cycle as a sink uh removing that carbon from the atmosphere they're, they're like the ogs but they can also be a source right the deciduous forests, they, they drop their leaves, which right. decompose. Yeah. So if you ever look at, and I don't know who does this, but, you know, folks look at, like, say the the concentration in parts per million of atmospheric CO2 throughout the season or throughout the year, you see a sawtooth pattern, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you see it go down, that's a northern hemisphere summer where they're putting all leaves, sucking in carbon, and then when you see it go back up, they drop their leaves, and that's when some of that carbon goes back up. So they are like, I, I will never call them the lungs of the earth, like the <laughs> Amazon, because like I gotta, I gotta give respect to you know phytoplankton analogy. Like mm -hmm. they're killing it in terms of CO2 yeah. sequestration. That's a whole thing that a lot of people don't don't like to talk about because it's in. This is my opinion here, so like. I'm not an expert on this, but 
the whole Amazon is the lungs of the earth uh, has they're extremely important. Do not discount the importance of the Amazon rainforest to carbon sequestration, etc. Cultural importance. Let's not talk about like the almost government. Well, let's not. That yeah, I mean, too controversial, but you know the genocide of the indigenous peoples there now that's happening. But uh, yeah, like it's so marketable to say that the Amazon is the lungs of the world because people can kind of wrap their heads around that and understand that and get behind that. But really, the, the phytoplankton and the cyanobacteria uh, really pull, you know, punch above their weight and uh, probably actually do more than all the trees. But I mean, they do, yeah. But uh, you know that was just that was just a little Easter egg. So yeah, but it's I don't know, and it's different. But yeah, tree trees do their part. I, I offhand I want to say it's like thirty percent um, for the terrestrial carbon sink in terms of the sink of the the Earth, but or maybe that's even just northern hemisphere. I I don't know. Don't quote me on that. I don't know the statistic off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, I mean, trees are incredible. They suck in carbon. They tell us about the environment. What more could you ask for? Exactly. Soulless. The altruistic contribution, right? Altruistic indeed. <laughs> Not they, really. Not really. But I mean, they just want to grow. They just want to do their thing. They can do all those things for us uh, in self-interest at the same time. Mutualism. Yeah. <laughs> are there more trees than people? Uh, I think there are. Sure yeah. I don't know, man. I think it's by a lot too. There's like that's a I probably like it's like a crazy number. I think I would, I'll look it up I'll it. there's I don't know seven point whatever billion people. Yeah, it's pretty gross. <laughs> gross. <laughs> All right. Here's a summary. Google says there's three trillion trees. Estimate. Wow. Okay. That's quite a bit larger. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot of trees. <laughs> well, now we know. So is that con- is that counting palm trees because those aren't yeah there's extravagant grasses yeah yeah I think it's accurate and I don't think it counts the grass but it's possible that they count you know they have tree in the name so it could be confusing yeah could be you know, who can I say would have counted <laughs> what even is an organism we well, don't know let's get let's get real meta <laughs> but anyway so. Then, do you, are there any other questions you're pursuing, or like, where are you in this process? So, me personally, like I mentioned earlier, I really had no experience in ecophysiology. No. So, a huge, I mean, overwhelming part of this is me learning all the the ins and outs and really basic stuff that all my colleagues already know. And then I'm like, oh, did you guys realize that blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, yeah, everyone everyone freaking knows that, dude. And I'm like, wow, it's so incredible. <laughs> like uh, learning the ins and outs of a new field, That's that's been a lot of my time. But uh, I feel like that intimidates a lot of people, but I also feel like that's kind of what everybody goes through. And I, I think so. Certain people can just manage avoid avoiding talking about it. And it's like, I feel like that's just something everybody goes through. We're going through this process to learn, right? Like, you don't go into a PhD knowing everything you're going to need to know to do the PhD and yeah, finish it. And, they just give you a doctorate at that point. You know? <laughs> Can yeah. I go ahead and defend? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't happen. So, right, so you go into your PhD to learn in the first place. Like, 
and I almost view graduate school as a whole as like a commitment to further education, right? Like somebody who's going to do that. Well, let me just say somebody who has the passion to do that, who will actually kind of like enjoy the fruits of their labor is somebody who's going to be learning throughout their life. Yeah. One of the, the best kind of summer summarizations of grad school that I've heard, or at least PhDs, is doing a PhD, you learn how to teach yourself things. And it's it was the same thing with my advisor. I told her, I, I expressed my kind of discomfort with not knowing anything about ecophysiology up front. I was like, I said, John, I got tree rings. Like, I'm good with that. But, like, the rest of this, I'm, I'm less than novice. Like, And she's like, you know, when I started my PhD, I didn't know most of the stuff that I was going to study either. It's just an uh, opportunity to let yourself teach yourself something. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think it is just kind of a, like you mentioned, is just a commitment to furthering your learning on your own terms. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, you're accountable to some degree, but it you have so much agency and, like, I don't know. Like, it, that's another thing with grad school is, like, uh, the lack of structured time, <laughs> uh, which I initially struggled with. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know what? You're taking this semester and you don't have any classes. Like, you just do whatever, which sucks at first because you're like, I'm not going to do any of this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As you further your learning, you're like furthering the le- you're furthering the knowledge of that particular field. So the more you learn, the more the field grows. Just, yeah. A- absolutely, yeah. It's, it's it's your job to learn. It's a public service, if you will, you know, for the greater good, uh, whatever it may be. Yeah, you're, you're expanding your horizons and the horizons of the field. Hopefully, you know, you're you're doing some revolutionary stuff or at least an important aspect of things, right? Yeah. And I, I want to say, like, we didn't, we didn't like prompt you to say anything you just said, but like that. I have a script right here. <laughs> <laughs> but that like meshes up exactly with kind of things we teased out when we talked to our previous guest Neil. That really, it's about like going into everything on your own terms and finding the right fit for yourself. Yeah. Uh, so that's exactly what you just said there. So I think that that, that has to be uh, a really important lesson for people to take that, that are considering graduate school or going to the next step in graduate school that, like, it has to be on your own terms. Uh, you have to be emotionally invested in the situation and, you know, it has to be the right fit for you because otherwise everybody is going to be miserable. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> I've known people that just – kept going with grand school because they're like i don't know what the hell else to do Mm -hmm. they didn't know you know they weren't that passionate about their project and they hated it Mm -hmm. and i knew a few people at my old institution that just didn't graduate they were like Mm -hmm. i can't finish this i'm not gonna finish it Mm -hmm. uh so you have to yeah you definitely have to be invested in it somewhat and and one thing i'll say is Anybody that is, you know, considering graduate school or going, yeah, going from, you know, a master's to a PhD, whatever, find an advisor who you like and get along with and who can push you or whatever, which is hard to tell sometimes, but it's so important having a good advisor. Um, 
I don't know, rather than just somebody who's like, well, this person's a big name in my field. Like, yeah. they could be a complete asshole yeah, and yeah. not a good advisor. You got to see them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, you yeah. interact with them all the time. They are going to be basically forming you, molding you out of clay into the type of scientist you are. And if they're just like, I don't know, condescending dick all the time, then it's probably not going to be very good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and I think with all disciplines, people take advantage of their name or take advantage of their reputation if if they can pull something off. So, I mean, I don't think that's a rampant problem in, in our discipline, but like I said, I think it happens in every discipline. So, yeah. you know, there are those people that are just going to be like, I don't have to, why would I invest time into this person, you know, like, but you really want to find somebody who's going to be on the same page with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, coming, you know, we're we're still deep in the PhD process, both of us. Uh, we're still in that learning phase of of trying to figure things out in in your life. But when you finish your PhD and fully become the Marvel property superhero, Doctor Strange. No. Right now you're just Master Strange. Uh, what do you want to do? Like, where do you see yourself going and, and that kind of thing? Well, first and foremost, I just want to have a job. <laughs> uh, but beyond True that... American. Yeah. Yeah, anybody who says a Hoosier isn't American, <laughs> here it is, buddy. Um, no, so my, my kind of trajectory right now, I want to go into academia. Uh, I just... I really, really enjoy doing research. I like teaching in my during my master's. I taught a couple classes, and I really enjoyed it. There was so I taught a class that was close to 100, 100 students, and you know there was probably like 10, 15 students that were really into it. And for that, it was it was all worth it. Like mm-hmm. for the rest of them, the the 85 or whatever that just came in and I caught a kid watching soccer during my lecture one time. (laughs) It was a big classroom and I I walked around and he didn't even like try to hide it. He was just watching soccer, a soccer match during my lecture. I was like, whatever. It's cool. I don't care. Um, So like, but for the, the 15 or so of them, it was, it was really worth it. So, I think all that kind of culminates into me wanting to, to go to a research institution and continue to do research and uh, and teach, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. Well, I can't agree with your life wish, but I agree that it really is fulfilling uh, when you can teach and kids, or I guess we can't legally call them kids, right? I don't think we should call them <laughs> kids. They're adults. They in like pupils. Yeah. They are very young persons. Uh, it's really fulfilling <laughs> when young adults show a true, genuine passion for what you're trying to convey to them. Because you know, teachers are kind of the I would say like foundational to modern society. Without them, we wouldn't get anywhere. Nobody would learn anything or do anything. Shout out, Miss Kelvin. Miss <laughs> K. So, I mean, it really is fulfilling to do all that work and then see it pay off, like see people grow or see people yeah. kind of light up. But 
that's awesome that that you are they're leaning back that direction because there are some people who are like I went through that it was hell for me or it's not right for me don't want to do that but I'm still pursuing that which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that idea either no, like private we said sector is great too or yeah, yeah not for profits whatever mm-hmm. I just for me it was some of the most rewarding stuff was like whenever I would I would teach about a particular topic and there'd be like one or two students after class that would come up to me mm-hmm. and just be like, well, what about, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they would just be like extrapolating and they'd be like, okay, so we talked about mangroves, <laughs> but what about, you know, coastal floodplains or whatever? And you're like, yeah, great question. <laughs> great point. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic point. And like, that was so, so worth it. And I'd be like, well, I don't really know about that, but Either so and so knows about that, or you could look up this resource, and mm-hmm. that that was super worth it for me. Just mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I know, uh, like talking about like private sector being okay. Also, you know, it's like Max and I both had a high school science teacher who bounced back and forth between education and and the private sector mm-hmm. uh, based on whether he was feeling it at the time. And that guy was great. He was Which guy was that? Doctor uh, Azar. Doctor Azar. Oh, Azar. Yes. Pretty awesome. What do you teach? Uh, biology. So he taught ecology, but he also did like uh, some micro stuff, and I think he even taught like a crime scene class. Ooh, I remember that one. I never took it. Yeah, uh, but it was high school, so it was at a pretty basic level. But he he was a pretty smart person. I mean, you know, bouncing from academia and yeah, teaching high school. So. Yeah, but he was awesome, and and there are people that, like, you know, you shouldn't question somebody's, like, worth uh, based on where they are necessarily in their education. Sometimes things don't work out, and everybody has their own life experience and everything, so that's important to consider also. I mean, there's there's so many people in, like, private sector, Mm non-for-profits that are doing, like, actual applied stuff, and... It's so much more important. Like uh, I've I've known a couple climate scientists that have gone from being in academia to being in charge of non for profits that are really doing a lot of this climate uh, education outreach and things like that and educating the general public and it's it's super important work. It's you know basic research has its its merit and it's like. Well, if we understand what hydroclimate was for the past 2.5 million years <laughs> in Africa, that tells us certain things. But like, also saying like, we know that this variability happened in the past, and we can expect it probably mm-hmm. in the future. Like, in educating people, what's important about it? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it's super important. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, the nebulous, the great beyond, the <laughs> void. That's where we're all heading. Where will the world where where will yeah. the world be in the next three ish years? It's hard to say. Man, I've been yeah, I've been following the Democratic <laughs> nomination process. Pete Buttigieg dropped out. Yeah, today. He dropped out today. I mean, let's not get too far into politics, but let's also Hey, he's from Indiana. <laughs> well, it's relevant. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't have much faith in him, but let's it's that's over. So the chapter is finished. Chapter's closed. Sorry, Pete. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, um, do you have uh, any like closing statements you would like to make or anything like that? <sighs> closing statements. Well, we've covered a lot. Um, I guess Ooh, one thing. Okay, so you know, I mentioned I was I was a uh, an English major for pretty much all of my undergraduate career. I kind of you know the way I put it was stumbled through an open door into back into science. Um, if you're interested in physical science and things like that, take the hard classes now. I I took one calculus class when I was an undergrad, and that was about it. I didn't take chemistry. I didn't take any of that shit. And it has really bit me in the ass now. I am uh, relearn not even relearning, just learning some things for the first time as you know, everyone is like, yeah, we learned that in, you know, freshman year biology. And I was like, well, shit, I never did. Uh, take those, take those hard ass classes, like take Orgo Kim, you know? Yeah. That's, that's a hard one. terrible, terrible closing statement, but no, I, no, that was, that was good. It's important though. <laughs> yeah. Um, because we find our ways to weasel out of those. And, you know, I, I went through hell in my intro, like, Gen Chem. Like, let's not even – that's a sore spot for me, so let's not go there. But, yeah, those are important <laughs> courses that you do need to take. Uh, find find the ones that fit your life and your schedule and, and your learning style, but absolutely do try to take those early. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. The earlier you knock them out, too. You don't have to yeah. worry, worry about them later as well. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, we covered we covered most of it. Perfect. Well, uh, Brandon, I really appreciate you coming over here and doing the podcast. Uh, I think you know, unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties at first, but it worked out. I think we managed to only have one uh, ferret poop during the broadcast or the recording so it was raunchy too. <laughs> so didn't, have, didn't have to deal with too much stench but you know it is what it is uh could have been worse could have been, been worse no yeah i i really appreciate you guys having me it's uh it's been great just to to chat about science and research and you know the path from the beginning to the to now so mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it yeah, it was, it, was, it was great to have you on, Brandon. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, like we said, like we always try to, you know, science is for everybody. Everybody has their own path. And it was really good to hear from just another person who had a natural curiosity that you're, you're fulfilling now. So that's, that's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Good to, good to, fulfilling to know that there's like that kind of goodness in the world, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So if I can make one last tree pun yeah know. one less well hold on you got I'm one so ready. oh you have one yeah go for yours i was just gonna try and play something off of treat like but i don't want to say treat every day like it's your last that's terrible advice but uh uh i'll say to the host thanks for treating me <laughs> so so kind well i always <laughs> like to say that having talked to somebody who looks at tree rings to understand our past and forecast in the future, I think we can all agree that looking at these cross-sections of trees, time is a flat circle. Ooh. And on that note, <laughs> on that note, we'll, we'll just 
uh, sign off for the night. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, either rate or review if you have that opportunity. If you want us to cover something, reach out to us on social media slash email. And, you know, if you want to come on the show uh, and you're a scientist or interested in science, you know, let us know. Uh, we'll try to see what we can get to happen. But uh, thank you for listening.